This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. Hello, friends, and welcome back. I hope you can forgive me for the clickbait type of title for the talk today, the end of the Sermon on the Mount. The reason I entitled it that is because I'm going to talk about the last part of the Sermon on the Mount. I certainly don't mean that we're looking at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in terms of it no longer existing, but I'd like to take some time just to go through this teaching of Jesus, the tail end of the Sermon on the Mount. And the reason I thought I'd talk about it today is I was recently speaking with a group of people on the topic of what does it mean to be a Christian. And I guess I'll tell the story again here that I've told before, and I told it to them the other day when we were speaking. When I was a young believer, I was at the University of Texas in Austin, Texas, and an open-air evangelist named Cliff Connectly was speaking there on the campus. Cliff's ministry was, and I don't know if he's still involved in this, this was many years ago now, He would go into the open-air spaces on university campuses around the country, and he would speak, what we would say apologetically, defending the faith. And he would speak on the scriptures and on the truth of God and who Jesus is. And then after he spoke, he would take questions from students. And of course, many of the students were not Christians, and some were very much against his words. Others were quite interested I had never seen anything like that happen, and so I went to listen to him as he spoke on campus as often as I could. And one time, after he had finished speaking, an Asian student came up and asked him a question. And I don't really remember what the question was. I just remember the interaction that Cliff had with this Asian student. And if you can imagine in your mind's eye that I'm standing out in the open outside there, Cliff is sort of to my left, maybe a meter, three feet ahead of me, and then the Asian student is off to my right a little bit, and they're facing each other. So we have a little triangle going, and I'm just listening to this conversation. The Asian student on my right asks Cliff a question, and Cliff replies, okay, let me ask you a question first. Are you a follower of Jesus? And the Asian student balks for a second. He stops, and you can see him thinking in his mind how to answer that question. And then after some thought, the Asian student says, no. Cliff had asked him, are you a follower of Jesus? The Asian student says, no. And Cliff goes, okay, good, thank you. And then he continues to answer the question that was asked. And the thing that stood out to me in that interaction is Cliff did not ask the student, are you a Christian? He asked the student, are you a follower of Jesus? And as I thought about that later, I realized that had Cliff asked me 10 years prior, when I was a teenager, are you a Christian? My response would have been, sure, I'm a Christian. Yeah, sure. I I grew up going to church. I have a Bible in my room. My parents always went to church. Yeah, I'm a Christian. Sure. But if you'd asked a 15-year-old me, are you a follower of Jesus? Well, that would have hit me as a very different question. Am I really following Jesus? And I know I've told this story multiple times here on this podcast. 
But I bring it up again because I want to talk about the end of the Sermon on the Mount here in the context of what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? My assumption is that anyone listening to my voice right now is a follower of Jesus, or at least wants to be a follower of Jesus, or desires to more deeply understand what it is to walk with the Lord in real time, not just to have some mental assent to his teachings, but to actually have a relationship with the living God through the gift of the Holy Spirit. And before I get into what Jesus said there in the Sermon on the Mount, I want to mention something that Paul said to Timothy, and we have it in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Paul says to Timothy, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. You know, in the past I always wondered, why? what's so important about the public reading of Scripture? Uh, why was that something that Paul was instructing Timothy very specifically to do, to read the Scripture in public? In the past several years, I have visited cultures where there are quite a few people that are not literate. They don't know how to read. And it struck me that the only access that they really have to the Word of God is if somebody reads it to them. That would be their direct access to the written Word of God is if someone reads it to them. Now, of course, preachers and teachers talk about the Word of God, but it's really, really important for people to actually hear the Word of God and read it if they can read, and if they can't read, to have somebody read it to them. Well, our modern culture has a lot of people that are literate in terms of being able to read, but they're illiterate when it comes to the Scripture, meaning they don't really read the Bible. They let other people tell them what the Bible says. And part of what I want to do here as we go through the tail end of the Sermon on the Mount, is to let the Scripture speak for itself. Let the words of Jesus speak for him. And I'll say a few things about it, but really, so we can just listen again to what he says and understand what it is to be a follower of his, a disciple to whom he speaks. So to return back to this idea, what is a follower of Jesus? What is a Christian? And I've just used the word disciple A disciple is a person who studies with a master, but also lives with a master and watches as the master lives his life and learns from the teacher. And we are called not to believe in Jesus and then live our own lives. We are called to walk with him, to abide in him, to set up our home with him and allow him to set up his home by his spirit in us. So let's sit at the feet of Jesus for a little bit here. And listen to what he says. And I want to start (laughs) looking at what Jesus said by the way people responded to him when they first heard the Sermon on the Mount. And this is one of my favorite scriptures, actually, in the Bible. It's been very helpful for me to see this. It's not what Jesus said. It's what happened after he finished the Sermon on the Mount. And this is found in Matthew chapter 7, verse 28. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. You know, sometimes on television, perhaps, they're showing fireworks, 
and occasionally they'll turn the camera toward the people that are watching the fireworks, and you see the wonder and amazement and the awe on the faces of the spectators as the fireworks light up their faces. And these two verses are sort of like that for us. Jesus finishes saying these things, and we turn and we look at the crowds, and what do we see? We see people that are amazed, and they realized, wow, this man has authority. He's not like the teachers of the law that we've been listening to all our lives. He is different because he really teaches with authority. And so, when I read the words of Jesus in particular, in my mind, I think of his tone as having authority. He speaks with authority. That's something that really struck the people that were listening to him. He wasn't giving good advice. He wasn't suggesting things. He didn't say, here's what I think, and if you like it, then you can apply it. He was speaking with authority. And of course, he has all authority. He's the creator of all. And he knows exactly how creation works. He knows everything. He knows the very best way in every circumstance. And so he can speak with authority. As an aside, I'll also say that you and I can speak with authority when we speak the words of God accurately. We really can speak with authority because it doesn't depend on our character or our personality, but it's his word, and his word is true. Well, I'm going to pick up in Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 19. Jesus said, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. And if then the light within you is darkness, oh, how great is that darkness. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So I'll stop there. In this little section here, and it continues on as he talks about not worrying about our lives or not depending on money, he starts off saying that we shouldn't store up treasures on earth but in heaven, and then he seems to speak with an aside about the eye being the lamp of the body, and then he returns to the theme of not being devoted to money, not putting our trust in money, and I think there is a through line of his thinking here. How often have you ever seen or perhaps it's happened to you, it's happened to me, if somebody said, if you were to win the lottery and you had $5 million, what would you do? And your eyes light up. Oh, I've seen people do this for sure. I asked one pastor one time, what is it that you really long for in the kingdom? What are you really looking for? And oh, his eyes lit up and he looked so happy and yearningly as he said, oh, I want a building. I really want a building. He was looking for something where moth and rust destroy. He wanted to have a building. He really wasn't thinking about the spirits of his people at that point. He just, his hope was in a building. His eye lit up. 
The Lord says, if your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. And if that light, what we think is light within us, is actually darkness, then it is a great darkness because it's very deceptive. And we need to be cautious that our eyes don't light up when we think about money or when we think about things on this earth that are all just going to rust away or be destroyed or be stolen. We can't put our hope in those things. As a matter of fact, Jesus says quite clearly, you, you cannot serve God and money. It's not possible to serve them both. One will be the servant of the other in our hearts. We're going to give one of them priority. And money can be used to serve God, or people can try to use God to make money for themselves. And we can't serve them both. We can't give them both priority. One or the other is going to win out in our hearts. And if money and wealth and things of this world have priority in our lives, then the light within us is darkness. But if God has priority and our money and our wealth and all those things are used to glorify him and to serve him and are at his service, then our eyes are good and our body is full of light. So continuing on, Jesus says, and therefore, because of this, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or about your body, what you'll wear. Is not life more important than food, and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or stow away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. And therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. That's really beautiful. And as we look at this section, I just want to remind you, think of him speaking with authority. Jesus, the Lord of all creation, speaks with authority, and he says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life. He does not say, therefore, I suggest that maybe you might want to consider not worrying so much. He says, I'm telling you, don't worry about your life. And now Mike Cantrell is telling you, the listener, do not worry about your life. Don't worry about what you're going to eat or drink. Don't worry about your body, what you're going to wear. Just don't worry about those things. Seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, the kingdom of our heavenly Father, our heavenly Dad, our Papa. Seek first his kingdom, his authority, his righteousness, and everything else will be given to you. You will get what you need, because God knows that you need it. So don't worry about tomorrow. 
Tomorrow will worry about itself. That's true. Now, I have known people that worry a lot, and I have seen that tendency to worry sap the life out of them. They're living in fear of an unknown future. And it could be that some of their worries and concerns are actually valid, but they're still living in the future, and they're still letting these concerns and anxieties grip them and control them in the present. And Jesus, who created human beings and knows best how we function in the world, he says, don't worry about this stuff. Don't let your thoughts go in worry beyond the day. Each day's got enough trouble of its own, so just live in the day, seek God's kingdom, his authority, his righteousness, and everything is going to be provided for you. You're going to get what you need. And he says that with authority. Continuing on, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. And if you do, they may trample them under their feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. Now, a whole other episode could be given to judging and not judging and what Jesus means here. And I won't take a lot of time on this at this moment, but we'll come back to it, I think. What the Lord is saying is our place is not his place. He is the judge. He is the one who makes final judgments about everything. And we should surrender judgment to him when it comes to judging the souls and the motivations of other people. Now, obviously, in other places in Scripture, we're called to be discerning. And certainly when it comes to false doctrine, false teaching, we need to be able to judge those things. But to judge people and to condemn them now on earth before the judgment day is not our place. And even Jesus himself said, I didn't come to condemn, I came to save. And that should be our attitude. And why? Because we can be so hypocritical. Say, hey, you need to remove that little flaw in yourself, and then we're not even paying attention to our own great flaws. Some people have said this is an example of the humor of Jesus, that people hearing this might have laughed at him when he said this, because the imagery is so ridiculous. Oh, you've got a little speck of sawdust there, and then there's a big beam, a big plank sticking out of my own eye. <laughs> uh, he really makes his point. And he says, you're a hypocrite. You need to take your plank out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So we need to be super, super careful about judging other people harshly. Everything should be done in love so that people can be saved, not condemned. And Jesus says something that's a little bit cryptic, I guess. Maybe not cryptic, but it's not clear exactly how to, how to apply it. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw pearls to pigs. And if you do, they may trample them under their feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. There are some things in the kingdom of God that are beautiful, beautiful pearls, sacred, to be cherished by the followers of Jesus. 
And we should not just throw those things out in front of unbelievers who will not understand how beautiful they are and how sacred they are. And I'll give an example that comes to mind. I've touched on this multiple times over the past year or so in these talks. I'll preface it by saying, did you know that the word love does not exist in the book of Acts? Now, I've mentioned that before. You can check me. In the Greek, in the English, the word love is never once in the book of Acts. And this is when the church is being founded. This is when all of the great evangelism is happening. And if you go through all of the books of the New Testament, the word love is quite dominant in many places, but not in the book of Acts. It's not even there. Physically, it's not there. In the book of Acts, nobody even says something like, oh, I love the weather today. The word love isn't there. There's no mention of God's love. And that makes me think. It'll surely make you think as well. One view that I have is that the love of God is too often used in evangelism these days. To go to someone and say, someone who's not a believer, say, God loves you. They may not understand exactly what that means. And certainly there are examples of people who would say, oh, well, if God loves me, then why does he condemn people to hell? Or why does he allow bad things to happen to good people if he's love? And that is an example of someone trampling a beautiful pearl under their feet and then turning and tearing us to pieces. And I know what I'm saying is very countercultural right now because so much of evangelism is a discussion of God's love for you. But I think that is misplaced. And certainly when we look at the book of Acts, we see that that was not the message that was brought to unbelievers ever, never, ever once. Now, I will say that the love of God is always discussed and revealed to followers of the Lord. In the Old Testament, the few times that it's mentioned the love of God, it's always for his people. And then in the New Testament, when the love of God is spoken of, it's always to disciples. And then, of course, in the epistles, it's mentioned all the time. And that message of the love of God is for people who have already repented and believed in Jesus and been baptized and received the Holy Spirit, and they have received mercy, and therefore they can really understand that love of God, the way God shows his love, and I dare say the conditional love of God, because there are conditions to walking in God's love. So this, honestly, is an example, I think, of throwing pearls before swine. To go to someone who is a mocker of God and say, God loves you. Well, you know, don't be surprised if they trample that message under their feet and then they turn and attack you too. I'll come back to that, I promise. I'll come back to that theme. Because I'm aware that it really does challenge a lot of assumptions for the contemporary church. What is evangelism? How do you reach out? I will say that God's kindness leads to repentance. He acts on his love, but he doesn't always talk about it. And scripturally, that is not the primary message for an unbeliever. The primary message is you need to change your thinking and you need to put your faith in Jesus. And that is the way to move into an experience of his love. Okay, well, moving on with what Jesus said. Ask and it will be given to you. 
seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks the door will be opened. Which of you, if his son asks for bread, would give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, would give him a snake? If you, then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Jesus is not making suggestions. Jesus is making promises. He's not saying, you know, if you ask, you'll probably get it. And if you seek, you'll most likely find it out if you feel like doing that. He's making a promise. And that's not based on our abilities or our personality or our righteousness. He's making a promise based on the character of a loving Heavenly Father. So here is the promise of God for you. Ask and it'll be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. If we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, we're going to find it. (laughs) That's his promise. Now, of course, if you want to seek selfish pleasure, well, you'll probably find that too. (laughs) But the end is not going to be very good. For everyone who asks, receives. He's talking about good things. I think it's in the book of Luke. I'm not looking it up right now where he says, if we know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more would the Father in heaven give the Spirit to those who ask him? So amen. The Lord is not a manipulator. He's not passive aggressive. If we ask for bread, he's not going to give us a rock. He's going to give us bread. We have to come to him like children, but our Heavenly Father loves to give good gifts to his children. And he says in verse 12 here, In everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Recently, I've had conversations with people that have been deeply offended by other people. Either family members who offended them deeply, or brothers and sisters in the Lord who did things that really hurt them. And when we come down to it, the response is, well, do to that other person what you would like them to do to you. If you want them to treat you with respect and honor, then go ahead and treat them with respect and honor, even if they're not doing it. Do to others what you'd like them to do to you. And this is actually really, really helpful. It's really great because when we choose to respond in the opposite spirit, In these difficult circumstances, when we choose to respond in obedience to the teachings of Jesus, do to others what you would have them do to you, then something happens in the spiritual realm. Evil forces and spiritual darkness is just driven away by our obedience. Amen. Our obedience will put us on a firm foundation, as we'll see here in a little bit. So I encourage you, if something is going on relationally, you're having some problem with a family member or somebody at church or somebody at work, choose to be obedient to Jesus. Choose to do to that other person what you would like them to do to you. Treat them the way you would really like them to be treating you. If someone is gossiping about you, then don't gossip about them. 
speak well. If you want them to speak well of you and always assume the best of you, well, then do that for them. Even if they don't deserve it, (laughs) you know, just treat them the way that you would like them to treat you. If somebody's being argumentative, if somebody's raising their voice, and you'd say, boy, I just wish they wouldn't do that, well, then treat them that way. Don't fight fire with fire. Turn the other cheek. Do to them what you'd have them do to you. Well, we'll move on. Enter through the narrow gate, Jesus says, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. I think it's really great that this falls right in here, because honestly, what Jesus is teaching is not a broad, easy way. It is a narrow way. And there are many people that hear him say these things, but a lot of people don't actually allow themselves to be limited in such a way that they would pass through this narrow gate. The gate to destruction and the road to destruction is very wide, very broad, and many, many people follow that path. And we are to be the people that allow ourselves to watch the guardrails along the road, the limits that God puts on the side of the road, and as they get narrower and narrower and lead us to that gate, we stay on that path that he has for us. And he said, small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. In other places, we see that many are called, but few are chosen. In the parable of the seed, most of the seed falls on ground that does not bear fruit. Just a little bit of the seed actually bears fruit. And then we move on to a warning. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you'll recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. And every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, and thus by their fruit you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? And then I'll tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Wow. This is something that I've talked about recently, uh, the presence of false prophets in the church today, globally. I've been in African countries where people call themselves a prophet of God, and yet they are false prophets. I think I may have given the example before. One of the prophets in Congo would say things, as example, to a lady. God has told me that you must divorce your husband and leave your family and marry this other man, and then his gifts and his blessings are going to flow into your life. Can you imagine a prophet saying that to somebody? Or what happens commonly, uh, some prophet may say, if you give $1,000 to this ministry, then you're going to open up the floodgates of heaven and you're going to receive back a hundredfold. Things like that. These false prophets, they, they come in sheep's clothing. They come innocently enough and claiming to be peaceful, but they're ferocious and they'll tear us apart. 
And Jesus says, by their fruit, you'll recognize them. Right now in America, I know of some leaders in a mainline denomination, and the fruit of the way that they're acting is really pretty bad. It's causing division and distrust, and it's pretty easy to see. They are doing things in the name of the church, in the name of Jesus, and claiming to be loving, but the fruit of it is division and distrust and a sort of a hatred. So that's something that we need to be very careful of. We need to watch out for false prophets. We need to keep our eyes open because not everyone who calls Jesus Lord is actually in the kingdom. There are a lot of people in church life who claim to be doing the work of Jesus, but they're not actually walking with him. In another place, Jesus says there are going to be false prophets who could deceive the elect if that were possible. They do signs and wonders. I think we're going to see that more and more in the Western church. Certainly in Africa, these false prophets are doing signs and wonders. The miraculous things are happening. They're demonically inspired, and people are being deceived. And we need to watch for that. And even if somebody seems to be a sheep, (laughs) peaceful and loving and so sweet, we need to look more deeply and see where their ferocity is. And it's a caution for us that many church people are going to say on the day of judgment, Lord, and they're going to call him Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform miracles? Wow, those are people that are really deceived, and the light in them is darkness, and it's a deep darkness. But the Lord is going to say, I I didn't know you. And even though you claim to be doing things in my name, you were doing evil. Go away from me. Wow. Boy, that is really something. All right, so now we're going to close up with something I've talked about a lot recently. I don't feel like I need to cover this ground again so much. Jesus just got through saying, not everyone who calls him Lord is going to enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of the Father. And therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice Is like a man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. And right after that, it says that when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed because he taught as one who had authority. So listen to the authority of Jesus here. Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on rock. Brothers and sisters, we have been listening to the words of Jesus. And in the kingdom, it is not enough just to hear what Jesus says. We have to put them into practice. And if we will, indeed, put into practice what the Lord is saying, then we're like a wise builder who is building a house on solid foundations. We need to hear and obey. What have we heard him say today? Don't worry about your life. Seek first the kingdom. There's so many things that he said to us that are not suggestions. They're actually commandments. They're imperative commandments for us. 
do to others as you would have them do to you. You know what? If you will put that into practice in specific circumstances in your life today, you are going to be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. If we will treat others the way we would like them to treat us, then we're going to be standing firm when the storm comes. And remember, the rain comes down, the streams rise, the winds blow and beat against everybody's house. Everybody goes through these storms. But the ones who hear the words of Jesus and put them into practice, those are the people who stand. And not everyone who calls him Lord is going to stand forever. Only those who do the will of God are the ones who are going to stand. Remember, Jesus has authority. We are not to put ourselves above Jesus, looking down and judging his words, trying to find the things that we agree with and the things we don't agree with, and putting into practice only the things that we think are right. We have to submit ourselves to his authority. And that's what it is to be a follower of Jesus, a humble human being who recognizes the authority of Jesus, that his ways are the right ways, and there are no other ways inherit eternal life. So then, friends, until next time, I pray that you'll continue to seek out the pathways of God and to walk in them because his ways are good. They're always good, and they really do lead to peace for your soul. Amen. Jesus said to his disciples, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Thank you for listening, and God bless you all.